So he lists some universal commonalities and he starts with a higher power. The fact that all these religions have a higher power. Okay, but who or what is that higher power? Because we have a creator and any other power is underneath the power of that creator. And that is God, the God of the Bible, the only one true living God. That's it. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. If you have been enjoying the content of One Little Candle podcast, I would like to encourage you to head over to my website and subscribe. Not only will this allow you to stay up to date with the latest episodes, but it will also give you access to additional resources, links to helpful ministries, and much, much more. By subscribing, you will also be supporting the podcast and helping me to continue bringing important conversations to listeners. So visit my website now at onelittlecandlepodcast.com and click on the subscribe button to join the community. Thank you for listening to One Little Candle Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today as I finish up chapter seven of refuting the book Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, written by actor Rain Wilson. And so we begin this chapter, which is titled The Fabulous Foundations of Faith, where the author shares with us that he took a class on the history of Christianity. So he covers some of that in this chapter. But he talked about the amazing nature of the early church and um don't disagree with them. They were modeling for us. They were setting the foundation example of how we were to live. So he talks about the diverse uh, people that joined this church and were, were devotees and how it brought people from all walks of life together to worship the same God. It says, in some ways, one might say that Christianity is the first actual religion, quote unquote, in the modern sense, in that it offered a set of beliefs that folks of all backgrounds could ascribe to, as opposed to an inherited set of rituals mixed with a geographic identity and tribal inheritance. It was the first belief system that one could, quote unquote, join regardless of your cultural affiliation based on the precepts laid out in the early gospels and by the nascent clergy. So for Probably the first time in the history of humanity, he writes, a religious movement was greater than the tribe from which it originated, and in Christ's eyes, all were equal in the church and worthy of his love. Rich, poor, Roman, Jewish, African. No matter your history, class, or ethnicity, all people were brothers in Jesus' love, and sisters too. Women played a significant role in the early centuries of Christianity, especially upper-class Roman women, including Emperor Constantine's mom. It was one of the few groups, maybe the only one of the time, that had a place where women could experience equality under God. A big tent indeed, and as if that weren't enough, charity, alms, service. Early Christians were known for sacrificing their own comfort, time, and money to help the less fortunate of other tribes, races, classes, and peoples. Mr. Wilson, it's not just early Christianity, but it's current Christianity. That is why believers go to the most dangerous and remote parts of the world, risking their lives, leaving behind their loved ones. They run to places that people run away from. They run into the fire to try to snatch people from the fire, to try to keep people from spending an eternity in hell. They do it because they know the only... um answer, the only hope is found in Jesus Christ. He says, WTF, why on earth would members of this crazy, formerly Jewish cult, spend their time, energy, and resources 
helping others outside of their own family, village, or tribe. They would even bring food, aid, and succor to poor folks who worshipped idols. All this in honor and emulation of this miraculous day laborer Jesus guy (laughs) who hailed from some podunk dump called Nazareth over in Galilee. Yes, because Christians are following Jesus' example as servant. That's why. Christianity, the church, has had a tremendous positive impact on this world. It's had a powerful impact, a positive influence. I shudder to think about what this world, it's bad enough now, you think it's bad now. I shudder to think about what it would have been like, what it would be like now without Christianity. Always been a good thing for the world. Perfect? No, no no perfect people belonging to Christianity. But it's Christianity that worships the perfect one. Well, he's got this right. He says, Christians often get a bad rap in the press and online. Anytime you're involved in a cause that involves a large, diverse group of people, think of the Christians. Anytime you're at a gathering where there's an urge towards something greater, something transcendent, think of early Christianity. Anytime you're working side by side with others in service to the less fortunate, remember the founders of the church in those early centuries and now, he says. Yes, Christ and his followers have had a positive impact around the world. And then he talks about early Buddhism and that it had great uh, similarities to the Christian movement. Mm. Well, you know, yeah, similarities to the Christian movement, except all, all aspiring them to man. Man gets the credit. Here, for Christianity, Jesus gets the credit. God gets the credit. Again, Buddhism sounds great on the surface, but there's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no Jesus. There's no salvation. There's no dealing with with our sinfulness. Okay. There's no answer to to our our world's problems. (laughs) All right. And he talks about Islam, and I'm not even going to go there because... um, we see what Islam is doing around the world, and it's not good because at its core, it teaches and breeds hate for those that truly follow the Quran. That's what their prophet Muhammad teaches. But he says, perhaps these disparate religions are all different pathways leading somehow to the same ultimate truth. So he lists some universal commonalities, and he starts with a higher power. The fact that all these religions have a higher power. Okay, but who or what is that higher power? Because we have a creator. And any other power is underneath the power of that creator. And that is God, the God of the Bible, the only one true living God. That's it. He's the highest power. He's the only one that has a say over, he's the author of life. And he has a say over life and a say over death. He's the only one that has conquered death. Everyone else, whether or not they were a famed prophet or teacher, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is going to succumb to death. Death will get them. And they will, upon death, be judged. They will enter into eternity, either in heaven or in hell. The only one that's conquered death is Jesus Christ. Yes, he died, but he, it was his will to die. That was his mission. It was his plan and his purpose to come here to die as a spotless lamb, the one and only, the final sacrifice for our sins. But he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit on the third day, just as prophesied, just as he said he would with hundreds and hundreds of people who witnessed his being alive after his death. Now we have life after death. That's number two. Well, yes, many religions do say that there's life after death. Um, Some say that you're going to go on to live a different life. Maybe you're going to be a human in this life and the next life, maybe a different human or a dog or a flower. (laughs) Okay. Or some say that everyone's going to go to heaven. There is no hell. So. What are they saying about life after death? Because 
God's word tells us that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And then all those unrepentant sinners, those who reject Jesus Christ as God's one and only son, will in fact spend an eternity in hell. And those that he's chosen and that acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will in fact spend an eternity in heaven with God. Number three, religions boast of the power of prayer. Another commonality. Yep. Okay. Who are you praying to? (laughs) And is there really power if you're praying to a dead guy? Somehow I doubt it. But our God is living. He's alive. He's given his people access to his throne. Power is only onto God. Perhaps Mr. Wilson should ask himself, why is it all the praise and all the glory, um, all the hymns and the songs written over the years and praise and worship that goes on within the church and the, you know, in the body of Christ and much of it because of answered prayer? Unless I'm, you know, living under a rock, I don't see and hear that when it comes to any other of these religions. I, I don't. And, and for good reason. Because there really is no power of prayer. Oh, they may have plenty of coincidences, uh, things like that that happen or people's imagined things. But, but, but through God, I mean, including in God's word throughout history to this day and age, Things happen where there's just no other explanation other than God and and people who would die and give their lives really over that fact, the the power of answered prayer by the only one who, who hears our prayers and who has the power to respond to them. So the fourth universal commonality he has listed here, transcendence. So here he talks about how through some core ideals of religious practice that human beings have been able to rise above the demands of their genes and evolutionary programming, he says, to put community ahead of their selfish interests and that all faith traditions urge us toward this type of transcendence. So he talks about the um, different forms of transcendence and you know how they're reached through Buddhism, through Islam, through, through Hinduism, being able to overcome or experience beyond the normal or physical level to reach a spiritual state. And none of them include the word of God, nor do any of them include Jesus. He says, in most all faith traditions, we are not just our bodies, minds, or feelings. Reality is not just stuff. There are realms invisible to the eye, to be perceived only by spiritual means. And part of our sojourn in this glorious, infuriating land of mud is a longing for the transcendence radiating from the light outside the mouth of the cave. Well, we are spirit. We are all spiritual beings. Humans are, not animals. We have souls. Um, there is a spiritual realm. Absolutely there is. Filled with angels and, well, filled with demons. <laughs> okay. And there is the Holy Spirit, all right? That, that is um, God's Spirit sent to us to dwell within believers, those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who seals us in our salvation so that we can never be separated from God, never lost. The Holy Spirit is our guide. He is our convictor, our encourager, our helper. I think, you know, we perceive the spiritual part within us from God with the help of the Holy Spirit. We perceive God through the help of the Holy Spirit and, and through God's word. Unfortunately, the spirituality that the world seeks, if it's outside of Jesus Christ, is demonic. It's, it's the doctrines of demons. The next commonality is community. Yes, um, a lot of people do form community uh, around religion. But is it a community that is living to serve the living God and living to serve others, right? To follow their Savior's example as a servant? Next, the author lists a moral compass. Well, (laughs) first of all, people differ on what morals are. Um, But see... 
a lot of religions, their compass points to sinful man. We need a moral compass that points only to Jesus Christ. And there's only one religion that does that. It points to the perfect one, to the creator, the force of love. Well, again, one religion that I don't see any love coming out of right now. Okay. What do you mean by love? Agape love? Phileo love? What? Um, We're not talking about some wishy-washy sentimental love. We're talking about a love that puts others first, a love that calls out wrong when it sees it, even at the risk of, of relationship, you know, a love that doesn't tolerate sinfulness, a love that loves God enough to, to sacrifice themselves and their lives to glorify and honor him. Increased compassion, yes. A religion should give increased compassion for people, but the most compassionate person that ever lived was Jesus Christ. And if we're not emulating the, the compassion of Jesus Christ, how far will it really, really go? Service to the poor. Um, Do they all have service to the poor? I don't know. I know that the Christian religion does, but also for many religions, service to the poor is a, a way of merit. It's done for the benefit of themselves so they can uh, get approval from God or feel good about themselves or get good karma. Okay, but this service to the poor, we do it to glorify and honor our Lord and Savior not to earn merit. Isaiah 64, 6. Let me talk about this verse for a minute here. Now, contextually, it's a passage that's referring to the Israelites in Isaiah's time. The Israelites had strayed from God. And so Isaiah was writing concerning the nation of Israel and their hypocrisy. But he also included himself in the, this, this description. And so we can include ourselves in this as well, too. Because Isaiah knew that he was utterly sinful, as we all are. And so this illustration could also be applied to to the whole world, for that matter. But um, it says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And so all these pious acts of of righteousness and, and service that the nation was practicing, the nation of Israel was practicing while they were worshiping false idols, okay? They were, they were filthy to God, okay? Polluted, polluted garments. And one of the biggest lies told through the ages is that somehow man can make himself good enough to deserve to be right with God or, or to be with a, a completely righteous, blameless, holy God. Yes, God commands us to do good works, all right? But as far as getting right with God and salvation, we cannot do anything to save ourselves. Our salvation is only, only a result of God's grace, grace being his unmerited favor upon us, all right? Ephesians, let's take Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Yes, we are to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we are talking specifically about believers, okay? So all these religions, and these, um, the, these are the religions that the author is pointing the reader to, they believe that damnable heresy that somehow you can be good enough to spend an eternity with God. No, you cannot. There's nothing we can do to earn our relationship, our rightness with God. God's intention is that our salvation, our surrendering to Jesus Christ, will result in acts of service. Because we're not just saved for our own purpose, okay? Just so that we can spend an eternity with God so that we can be saved from our sin and, of course, our wages being an eternity in hell, the wages of our sin. But God also, um, his intentions in our salvation through our acts of service are to, to serve Christ and to build up to benefit the church. So in a nutshell, <laughs> I know I took a long took the long way around to saying this, right? Our righteous acts don't produce salvation. They don't give us salvation. They don't 
get us to God. But our righteous acts are, in fact, evidence of our salvation. James 2, verses 14 through 26, ESV. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And another commonality that the author shares is a strong sense of purpose. For whom, I ask. Strong sense of purpose, commonality, but for whom? For ourselves? To feel good about ourselves? To say that, well, we belong to this or we belong to that or this is what I'm going to do. My purpose is to... My purpose is to advocate for abortion rights. Well, again, the purpose has to be for God and what what he wants. He has a disclaimer here at the bottom. It says, an obvious commonality among all the world's major religions is the organization around the message of a central figure, the larger-than-life divine teacher such as Buddha, Krishna, Moses, Christ, Muhammad, or Baha'u'llah, who was revered and who sacrificed his life for his respective messages of inner peace and world love. You know, the OG influencers of planetary spiritual transformation. But the existence of a central figure won't be one of the 10 truths we explore. For one, over the centuries, many of these great individuals have become sadly divisive figures. And my goal is to focus on the core teachings that emerge through the revelations of these great figures, not the presence of the figure itself. Well, many have become divisive figures, but let, but, but there's more than one reason to become a divisive figure. Um, most of them have become divisive figures because they are lies. <laughs> They're liars. Um, they bore false religion. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, he admits he came with a sword, <laughs> okay, because he's truth. He is truth. Sinful man doesn't want truth. So those who adhere to the truth of Jesus Christ, the transcendent truth, there, there's a division between them and those who do not want to abide or embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. There should be division. We shouldn't be completely united with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we shun them or we, we treat them, you know, um, less than humane. There are still people who are made in God's image, okay? We need to treat them humanely and with compassion. But we are not to be equally yoked, as God's word says, with unbelievers. Because what does light have to do with darkness? Nothing, except that light dispels the darkness. So, um, all right. He mentions, he talks about a higher power, whatever you call it, God in some way, shape, or form exists in every religious faith. Comes by many names, he says. And I don't want to take up any more space or time waxing on about the notorious G-O-D. This is where he's disrespectful to the living God, the God of the Bible. Um, Many point to Buddhism, he says, as an example of a religious movement without a central concept of a higher power, but this isn't entirely true. Yes, Buddhists do not worship any supreme being, but in seeking bliss, nirvana, and enlightenment, there is inherent spiritual force guiding that process. Well, I have to agree with the author here. There certainly is a spiritual force guiding that process. Unfortunately, it's a demonic spiritual force. Because it sets itself up against Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. All right, moving on. So he goes on, the author goes on to share something from Buddhism, from Siddhartha Gautama, also known as the Buddha, proclaims in Udana 8.3 of the Kodaka Nikaya, 
So, I mean, that's some sort of Buddhist scripture. But it says this, there is an unborn and unoriginated and unmade and uncompounded, all capital U's. Were there not, O mendicants, there would be no escape from the world of the born, the originated, the made, and the compounded. I'm like, huh? What? (laughs) Admittedly, it went over my head. But he goes on to explain here. He says, this, in my opinion, is another way to describe God without all that pesky Judeo-Christian anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism being the um, attributes of human characteristics or behavior applied to a God, animal, or object. Um. Again, just another way of his denying the the nature and the characteristics of the God of the Bible. But yes, he goes on and talks about life after death, and he gives all the traditions of life after death from Hinduism, mythologies, uh, you know, Buddhism, and the fact that some religions would uh, say we have what's called a soul that the soul created by the greatest God, Ahura Mazda, is immortal and has its resurrection at the time of what is called the Great Renewal. After one dies, the soul is judged immediately. We essentially pass over a bridge and the good will send to the house of songs, that is paradise, with angels watching over them. Those who have lived evil lives will be directed to the house of lies, that is hell. And then we have reincarnation, which he talks about. But (laughs) again, um, just all the nonsense of all the false religions in here and, and what they believe. So he gets to the part about a moral compass and he says, what seems to be happening and happening in contemporary society is that universal morals, ideas about what is essentially right and wrong are being continually downgraded and degraded for ever shifting socially constructed ethics and mores. Yep. He's got that one right. Huh? But yet, but yet, <laughs> Uh, he doesn't get it at the same time. And he, he talks quite a bit about it. Um, well, the behavior of our politicians, all right? Totally agree with them, calling each other names and being disrespectful. You know, he says the, the political parties in America, both of which claim to be inspired by Christian values, but we've lost our Christian values, Mr. Wilson. We've lost them. That no longer really applies, unfortunately. Um, he talks about bullying, what was once seen as grotesque bullying. It's commonplace now. The behaviors move from the never do this, it's not right, to the this is now awesome because social ethics have trumped basic universal rights and wrongs. In this scenario, the ends justify the means. Civility be damned. <laughs> Describing exactly what's going on right now. As long as the right team wins, it doesn't matter how immorally, divisively, and cruelly a candidate or campaign behaves, he writes. This isn't just political campaigns. This is people, isn't it? I'm sure you've all seen it. As long as we win, we get what we want. And again, that's not how the Christian community behaves. That's not how true, true Christians behave. True Christians are the ones that are bullied because of the social ethics, because of the the lack of decent morality in this world. So he makes, he does make some really, really good points about people's behavior. But now here, once again, is where the author does not get it. Because he, he turns around and says this. Now there is a much more complicated and nuanced conversation to be had about morality and ethics, far too complex for us to get into here. And I certainly don't mean to imply that society's quote-unquote moral decay frequently shouted from pulpits, the mouths of reactionary pundits, and the political campaigns of the world means any kind of return to the quote-unquote good old days of slavery, sexism, colonialism, and patriarchy. But there's a balance between ethics and morality on one side and individual rights, freedoms, and choice on the other that seems crucial to societal development. And we humans haven't quite figured out that give and take yet. Um, yes, there is a moral decay, and it should be shouted from the pulpits. Absolutely. And it should be part of our political campaigns, calling it out. We should be returning, making an effort to return to the good old days. Were the good old days perfect? No. But more people 
had a higher moral standard. People knew, take for example, homosexuality and transgenderism. People knew that was wrong. They didn't celebrate it. It was something that was shamefully, and rightfully so, practiced behind closed doors for fear of dislike and disapproval from the public. And again, rightly so. People weren't so hell-bent on abortion as they are now. And back then, in the so-called good old days, people, those who stood by God's values, were not being persecuted like they are now. But, you know, as far as individual freedoms, rights, and choices go, the fact is this. When we make choices, poor choices, that go against God, it affects everybody. It affects everybody when we step outside his boundaries. It affects families, homes, churches, schools, nations, cultures. It affects us all. And people mistakenly call these things rights. You have the freedom to do it whatever you want. God gave us free will. You have the freedom to reject him. Go for it. But I'll say it again. Same-sex marriage isn't a right. Abortion's not a right. To butcher yourself so you can change your body parts to, to match the sex that you prefer to be. Um, is not a right. All right, going to take a quick break here, so stay tuned for a message from Loving Truth Books. Mom, Dad, please help me. I'm hearing things at school. On the radio. I see it on the TV. Social media. In the books I read at school. And the books read to me at school. Are these things true? About who I am. About marriage? About gender? About race? It's all so confusing. I need to know what God has to say about it. Please give me a strong foundation. One what's based in God's Word. Empower me. Equip me. To know truth from a lie. I can't do it without you, Mom, Dad. If you don't teach me, who will? Got to me first before someone else does. Visit loveandtruthbooks.com. And then the author talks about love, the force of love. And it's a great section. And again, he gives um, several. Um, quotes about love from different people. This is my commandment that ye, ye love one another as I have loved you. Of course, we know that's from Jesus. And he also gives statements from Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, the, the Beatles, um, a name I can't pronounce, Rumi, just all these quotes about love. He even talks about agape love. He does address what the Hebrew scriptures say about God's nature and the word love. God's steadfast love, his covenant love, mercy, loving kindness, and the word agape, agape love, okay? He says here, it's the highest form of love, which embraces love of God for humanity and love of humanity for God. He says it's also a universal love that incorporates a love of nature and finds its greatest expression in selfless service to others. And the more you explore it, this concept of agape folds ever outward in waves, increasing in scope. So let's talk a little bit here about agape love. I like what gotquestions.org has to say about it. It says this, the Greek word agape is often translated love in the New Testament. How is agape love different from other types of love? The essence of agape love is goodwill, benevolence, and willful delight in the object of love. Unlike our English word love, agape is not used in the New Testament to refer to romantic or sexual love nor does it refer to close friendship or brotherly love for which the Greek word philia is used. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. It is distinguished from the other types of love by its lofty moral nature and strong character. Agape love is beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. Outside of the New Testament, the word agape is used in a variety of contexts, but in the vast majority of instances in the New Testament, it carries distinct meaning. Agape is almost always used to describe the love 
that is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God does not merely love, he is love. Everything God does flows from his love. Agape is also used to describe our love for God. Luke 10, 27, a servant's faithful respect to his master, Matthew 6, 24, and a man's attachment to things, John 3, 19. Hmm. The type of love that characterizes God is not a sappy, sentimental feeling, such as we often hear portrayed. God loves because that is his nature and the expression of his being. He loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence we possess, but because it is his nature to love and he must be true to his nature. Agape love is always shown by what it does. God's love is displayed most clearly at the cross. And when I hear agape love, I think of John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life. God being rich in mercy, it says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so that's agape love. The fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He gave his life for us. Okay. Uh, None of these other people that the author talks about as great prophets or teachers or religious leaders have done this with the exception of Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ. But, you know, the Bible commands us to love others with agape love, whether whether they're uh, fellow believers or bitter enemies. Agape love isn't something that's based on a feeling, all right? It's, it's a willful love. It's determined to love unconditionally. It puts the welfare of others above our own. Which is why you will see Christians going to places of grave danger, putting their lives at risk, uh, you know, leaving their loved ones behind to preach the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of agape love instilled in them through the Holy Spirit. Agape love that cares about the lost, because well, we know what their horrible, horrible fate is. If they do not recognize their separation from God and repent and surrender to the one and only, to the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. You know, a good example of agape love is from Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Again, Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. That's a wonderful, wonderful example of agape love. And this is the love that you will find, um, not carried out perfectly as our Lord and Savior does, but you will find the church, true believers within the church, carrying out that agape love. And it's not something that comes naturally to us as as people who are fallen in nature. That is why without the Holy Spirit in us, we cannot truly love in that manner. We cannot practice agape love. It has to come from its source, which which is God. It has to be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit within us as Christians, as believers. The rest of the world cannot practice that love without recognizing the God of the Bible. So all the other stuff that's talked about in this book, Soul Boom, well, it's, it's useless. It sounds nice. It's all flowery and pretty on the surface. But unfortunately, that is not the love that the world really wants to practice because it's self-sacrificial. You you love God first and foremost. You love what he loves, all right, which most of the world doesn't love what God loves, unfortunately. Righteousness, holiness, 
boundaries. The world is more interested in the Eros love, which is um, erotic or sexual or passionate love. Now, God has also given us Eros love to enjoy with our spouses and our spouses only. The The world has per, per, perverted um, Eros love as well, like they have everything else. You know, the world focuses on, a, again, I've said this time and time again, I sound like a broken record, the fickle, selfish, emotionally driven, if you're, if you're making me happy and, and doing what I want, um, I'm going to love you. But if not, well, so long, I'm out of here. Um, it focuses on really self more than anything, I, I would have to say. You know, we have, of course, um, we also have filia love, which is brotherly love, a love for your fellow man or like a, a friendship type of love. And the world is okay with that too. But again, it, it has its limits. <laughs> it has its limits. If you make me mad or angry or, you know, I don't agree with you or you're not giving me what I want or fulfilling me, they pull that love away. They take it away. But the agape love, again, it puts others first. And I think agape love is, it holds itself responsible. It holds itself accountable to the one who was love, which is God. God is love. And the world knows very, very little about that kind of love, and it really doesn't want to. So we, as I said, we have to ask ourselves when we talk about love, what are we talking about here? All right. The world's kind of love or, or God's kind of love, which demands a lot of us. The only way to achieve what the author of the book wants to achieve, he wants to achieve peace, unity, harmony, uh, community, love. But all that starts with this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's Luke 10, uh, 10, 27 ESV. And when we love God that way, we love what he loves. It all starts there. And if it doesn't start there, if that's not the foundation, it's not going to work. It's not going to bring unity. It's not going to bring peace. It's not going to bring hope. Imagine how different our world would look if we loved like that with that as our foundation. What a different place the world would be. It would be such a better place, a better world. But thanks to religions like Baha'i, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all these false religions, religions that refuse to acknowledge and submit to the one true living God, the God of the Christian Bible, you're not going to have that. And so it's kind of pointless. He has a quote from Muhammad here from Islam. He says, not one of you truly believes until you wish for others what you wish for yourself. <laughs> wow. So according to the Islamic prophet Muhammad, you are not a believer in their God <laughs> or him, I suppose, if you don't basically treat others as you'd like to be treated. Okay. Wow. Well, what about all these followers of Islam who did what they did on October 7th? I highly doubt that what they did to the Israelis is something that they would, wanted, would have wanted done to them or their families or their neighborhoods. What they did to Israel, to the citizens of Israel, to the Jews, what, what does that say? I mean, for me, this... This is just a perfect example of the inconsistency, the hypocrisy of false religion, because it's not based on truth. It's not based on, like what Christianity is, the one true living God who does not change. And because he is truth, he is steady, he is consistent. He doesn't vacillate like, obviously, Muhammad or the Quran does. But but these these um these sayings that he has here, 
Jainism, I don't know what that is. One should treat all creatures in the world as one would like to be treated. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Christianity, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Confucianism, one word which sums up the basis of all good conduct, loving kindness. Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. Buddhism, treat not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Uh, Taoism, regard your neighbor's gain as your own gain and your neighbor's loss as your own loss. You know, these are all things that are from God, God himself. God has instilled these things in us. He has written these things upon our hearts, upon the hearts of those he's created. (laughs) In other words, we know better. We know right from wrong, so without excuse, because although we know it, we often don't choose to practice it. Um, problem is with all these sayings from all these other, these false religions, um, they attribute these to man as though somehow these great prophets and teachers, as they're known as, came up with these things. Because no one wants to go back to the original source, which is the one true living God, the the God of the Christians, the God of the Bible. But anyway, he he says, in a nutshell, religions give us both a personal reason to exist as well as a greater, loftier collective goal. So basically, you know, purpose, personal reason to exist, of course, is is purpose. And see, he says he says this in here. Conversely, turning toward the inner path of our own individual purpose, we are called on to nurture our God-given talents, develop our divine attributes, kindness, love, honesty, compassion, etc., and find tranquility and unity while in service to the aforementioned big picture purpose. So, you know, and, and his claim in this same page is that... Um, the big picture purpose question, he claims, is answered by integrating many of the universals of religion of religion found in the chapter. No, Rain. <laughs> no. Because, again, you have integrated lies. You have integrated false religions. And with the exception of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, you've also integrated false teachers, false prophets. It's not going to work. It's not going to provide people with purpose or or hope. People are embracing all kinds of these false religions, uh, spirituality, but um, it's not the true living God. And our purpose is to know and serve the one true God, the God that you refer to, Mr. Wilson, as a notorious G-O-D. That's the God who gives us purpose, the one that is a God of love and kindness and compassion. Yes, he is, but he's also a God of wrath and of judgment. He's not one without the other. He can't be one without the other. If he's not those things, the, the latter things, he can't be the former, in particular, a God of love and a God of mercy. So, um, Unfortunately, again, as, as wonderful as that sounds, as he ta- when he talks about, you know, nurturing our God-given talents and these divine attributes, it's all flowery talk. You know what I mean? There's no foundation to set it upon. And of course, that foundation being Jesus Christ. And so it just, it crumbles at the slightest bit of pressure. It always has and it always will. Look, our purpose is to know and serve God. That's our purpose. All these other religions, that's not their purpose. And if they do say their purpose is to know and serve God, as the Baha'i faith says, they're talking about a completely different God. They're talking about an idol, a God made up in their vain imaginations, not the God of the Bible. He says here, there you have it, my take on the 10 foundational principles exemplified and encompassed by most of the world's religious traditions. So he ends this chapter Seven, as I related in chapter two, one of the biggest pandemics sweeping the world as I write this has very little to do with COVID-19, much more to do with the mental health decline infesting the psyches of young people. It bears repeating, he said, the numbers are astounding. 
For the first time in history, the Attorney General of the United States issued an advisory on the youth mental health crisis in 2021. To quote one tiny section of the report, between 2007 and 2018, suicide rates among youth ages 10 to 24 in the U.S. increased by 57%. And from a 2022 article in the New York Times on the teen mental health crisis, in 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode, a 60% increase from 2007. Hmm. Well, no moral compass pointing to Jesus Christ. You know, uh, no God, no moral compass, no purpose. And we wonder why the suicide and depression rates amongst our young people are rising. All the while, I might add, while people are are gravitating towards spirituality. The problem is they're gravitating toward an empty spirituality, one that does not include Jesus Christ. They don't have a sense of purpose. They don't know the sacredness of their life, the sacredness of their being created in the image of God. They don't really know what love is, only the lie they've been told about it. They don't know the hope in Jesus Christ. They don't know self-sacrifice that brings joy. So he, he gave all the commonalities that he believed were the commonalities in the religions. He says, these concepts, along with prayer, love, and increased compassion, help decrease loneliness and provide serenity and well-being. They also help generate that most precious of resources in today's world, hope. In other words, perhaps this mental health epidemic could be allayed by what we might have lost by the jettisoning of all things, quote-unquote, religion. The author continues, so which religion, right? That's the question you've all been thinking. But which one, Rain? And maybe none of the existing religions can work. They're perhaps too mired in stigma, historical failings, bureaucracy, and bad PR. Hey, here's an idea. Why don't we build our own damn religion? One that can change the world for the better and give us a fresh start. Possible? Let's see. <laughs> Again, more more gibberish mixed in with things that um, are true and make sense. But, but anything good... Um, is lost in the confusion and chaos of the author's smorgasbord belief system. You know, it becomes painfully obvious as I go through this book, and I don't know if you're picking up on it, but I think I've said this many times. He wants this religion. He wants religion. He is trying to, you know, show the reader that religion, in spite of its flaws that he shared, can be a good thing. That organized religion can be a good thing, but he wants one without a central figure. That would eliminate Jesus Christ. He's, see, he's willing to eliminate any of the Hindu gods or, you know, Muhammad. He doesn't want that accountability. He really wants to really avoid Christianity. <laughs> okay, you can you can see that. But you know, the thing is, he wants to, as I said, have that religion without anyone there saying, well, this is what you should and shouldn't do. This was what you can and cannot do. Or more specifically, this is what sin is. And these are the consequences if you sin. And, well, we know religion left in the hands of sinful man is very, very destructive. And look at our world, all right? Here the author is is trying to solve a mess, and he is just solving the mess with with even more of a mess. He he doesn't want truth. He doesn't, most certainly doesn't want Christianity, Jesus Christ. And, you know, the thing is, and and I heard Alistair Begg say this in a sermon recently, and it stuck with me. And he said, Christianity isn't true because it works. Christianity works because it's true. That is truth. Truth that Rain Wilson does not want to hear. So sad. So sad. But, um... I'm going to be finishing up the book in the next couple of episodes. I will do chapters 8 through 10. Chapter 8 is, hey kids, let's build the perfect religion. 
<laughs> We're going to start with that. You know, he's going to talk about the 10 pillars of a spiritual revolution, as well as the broken blue marble. Talking about earth here. So, yeah, um, many would dub the book enlightening. It's really not. There's no light in this book at all. It's darkness. It's leading people to darkness or keeping people in darkness is what it so far seems to be doing. Right from the get-go, when you, when you deny Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God, as the Messiah, a Savior, Redeemer, deny the fact of his resurrection, his victory over death, his deity, Jesus' deity, when you deny his deity, you deny God as he presents himself, um, especially he has a problem with, you know, God's um, actions in the Old Testament. But when you do these things, you are pointing people in the wrong direction. He's pointing people away from Christ, away from the truth, away from the light. And so then what do we have left? Darkness. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Anyway, please come back next week and join me for um, the last three chapters. And uh, keep those prayers going, please, for, for the church, that God will help the church to stand strong during these days, these days of uh, only God knows what's ahead. But um, it doesn't seem to be great for the world, that's for sure. And, of course, be keeping Israel in our prayers as well. Like I said, this war is our war. This isn't just going to stay over there. Um, this is a world reaching, um, you know, has implications for the entire world, what's happening in Israel right now. Again, Israel is center stage for the final days here too. So it's uh, been an interesting three months since October 7th, hasn't it? It really has. I've been keeping track of everything and following everything um, to stay up to date on, on what's going on. But, you know, here in our country, we have our own mess, as you know. Um, and I'm not just talking about the anti-Semitism, the, the people, you know, rooting for the terrorists, but we have financial issues here and we have safety and border issues here. And we have a, a you know, a nation that's turned its back on God. We have a leaders who are completely incapable of leading leading this nation and people that are set out to destroy it. So amidst all this, the gospel has to go forth. God's word has to keep going forth. That's the only hope. We, we need to stand strong and um, stand united. We need to stay united as believers, united as the church, the body of Christ, you know? So be that one little candle, all right? Whatever it is that you feel God is leading you to do, what's, what's fueling you right now? What's giving you a, a passion when, when, you, when you hear about it or you talk about it or, or are studying it? Like what, you know, what's the flame that God's fanning in you? Stay in his word, stay in prayer, pray fast, Stay in, in touch, of course, with your brothers and sisters in Christ through church. Be active in church. Uh, speak the truth. Stand strong. Continue to be that light, the light that God says that you are, my friend. You are that light. But are you hiding it? Or are you letting it shine? Even if it's scary. Even if it's at, at risk to you. Are you letting it shine? Ask God for courage. Ask him for boldness. Ask him for gentleness and meekness along with that. But ask him for that boldness and that courage to do what needs to be done. Because my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are alive at this day and age, at this point in time. Why? Why you? What do you have that God would like you? He doesn't, look, he'll be fine without you. Okay, God is God, but that's not the point. The point is he loves you and he wants you to have the privilege of taking part in advancing his kingdom. He wants you to reap the blessings of it, even if for now it means a, it's a cost, it comes at a cost. 
you will be blessed. Consider it an honor to stand for righteousness. Be God's mouthpiece. Consider it an honor because it is. All right? Do everything to honor Jesus. And all you do, honor him. Okay, so I've got a song here. I like this song because actually it talks about honoring God and it's called You Are My King. And well, the Newsboys do it, but I also have a version here by Chris Tomlin. So uh, yes, Amazing Love by Chris Tomlin. And I will post the link to it. It's on YouTube. I'll post the link in the podcast show notes on my website, One Little Candle Podcast. Speaking of that, if you haven't visited my website, One Little Candle Podcast, please do. You can listen to the the episodes right there on the website, and I've got other little goodies in there as well as um, a blog, so please check it out and subscribe if you'd like. And you can also follow me on Instagram as One Little Candle Podcast, and I haven't (laughs) spent a lot of time inviting people to follow or getting the word out there yet, but I have been making some posts. Please check out Israel Fights for Humanity at Instagram. It's Israel Fights for the number four humanity. Um, trying to keep the perspective proper and, you know, put some things out there for people about what is going on in this war and to educate people on some things that they, they just might not know. So yes, have a look at that as well. All right, my friends, until next time, you take care and God bless.